Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at tmobile.com/now. Hey y'all, it's Justin Richmond here. We have a fantastic new podcast for you to check out today. We're bringing you a taste of Pushkin's newest show, Into the Zone, hosted by novelist Hari Kunzru. Hari loves and has written about music a lot over the years. His new podcast is all about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. We have a lot of artificial boundaries in the music world, and in this episode, Hari takes on the border war between rap and country evoked by Lil Nas X's chart-topping Old Town Road. To get at the root of the controversy, Hari heads down to the foothills of Virginia, where a legendary collection of blues records holds the key to understanding the insidious separation of quote-unquote black and white music. You can find Into the Zone on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Hari Kunzru and Into the Zone. This thing is packed up like Fort Knox. My friend Chris King stands in the living room of his old house in rural Virginia. But this is where it actually gets fragile. This is like doing open heart surgery because this is when you could slice that microscopic vein. Chris takes a kitchen knife to a large package, a two-by-two-foot cube. My friend cultivates an old-timey look. He has a moustache, round tortoiseshell glasses, suspenders holding up his corduroys. He's approaching this job in a methodical way. Think of a 1930s country doctor examining a patient. Holy shit! Inside the cube, he finds more packaging... And still more. It's as if someone's playing a trick on him. Inside one box, there's another. And another. Then, 
a sandwich of cardboard and foam. And finally, in the very middle, a record. Just one record. Shiny mint copy. Holy shit. This record is 90 years old, more or less, made to spin at 78 revolutions per minute. The disc is fragile. It's coated with a substance called shellac, a resin secreted by an Indian beetle. Shellac was too expensive to use for the whole record, so it's only on the surface. The inside of a 78 is filled with clay and limestone dust. It makes them heavy and very brittle. Drop one, and it will shatter like a china plate. That's that's so clean, you could shave off then. I met Chris some years ago when I was researching my novel White Tears. The book is a ghost story about record collecting and the Mississippi blues. To understand that world, I needed to talk to a 78 collector, someone who is deep in the subculture. Chris agreed to help me out. He's the kind of source a novelist can only dream of. Everything was stitched into the fates, Hari. You know, nothing. there's nothing by chance. Now I'm here to witness him in his happiest place. Somehow or another, the day that I was born, it was written into my fabric that I was going to play this record for you. And carefully, he lowers the needle into the groove. This is Into the Zone, a podcast about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. I'm Hari Kunzru. This episode is about music and authenticity. It's about tradition and modernity. It's about black and white. Seventy-eight collectors are notoriously secretive. The first one I contacted while writing White Tears, well, he told me that revealing information about collecting would be against his self-interest. Because if more people realised how amazing these records are, the prices would go up and it would be harder for him to collect. But Chris is the kind of guy who wants to share what he loves. He welcomed me into his lair in Virginia, and I've wanted an excuse to go back ever since. And we're lucky enough to be in your... I mean, do you call it a listening room? What do you call this place? My record room. Your record room. Yeah. yeah. I can do more than listen here. Chris isn't lying. He won a Grammy in 2002 for his work compiling early recordings. He remasters old records for re-release. This room is a shrine to the early years of recorded sound. Thousands of records in identical brown cardboard sleeves sit on shelves. The walls are hung with memorabilia, portraits of long-dead fiddlers and jug bands. There's a mixing desk, a turntable, two monitor speakers hung on cables from the ceiling. Is there a cut-off date to your, to your collecting of American music? I mean, do you have anything after the Second World War? I don't collect anything that sucks. Don't collect anything that sucks. I think that is a valid collecting strategy. Well, that's, that's clearly a good rule of thumb for anybody, but is there a date at which you stop? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have hardly any post-World War II. I have no post-World War II blues, and I have, like, maybe one or two 
post-World War II hillbilly things. The record Chris just unpacked is by Mississippi musician Robert Wilkins. The song is called Rolling Stone, Part One. Hearing this on an original 78 is like the second coming for blues fans. There are very few known copies, and this is the one in the best condition. Robert Wilkins is not the only early blues musician to have recorded a song with Rolling Stone in the title, but he's the one the English band called the Rolling Stones had to pay royalties. On the album Beggar's Banquet, there's a track called Prodigal Son. When it was released back in 1968, it was credited to Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. It's actually a pretty straight cover of a song by Wilkins that he'd been playing since the 1920s. After a long court case the elderly bluesman finally got what he was owed. There are many stories like this. The British invasion bands of the 1960s, like Cream and Led Zeppelin, did a good job of repackaging country blues and selling it back to Americans with an English accent. I grew up in England listening to a lot of those bands, and like many people, I eventually found my way back to the blues tradition that they were borrowing from. But it was a long time before I really understood how strange it is that rock and roll, music that comes from the blues, came to be thought of as a white style. It's one of the reasons I went to Virginia to talk to Chris. He knows this history better than almost anyone. In modern popular music, we make this distinction between black and white traditions in America. And do you think that distinction has any validity? Well, obviously it has validity now, but if you go back to basically um, the, the Civil War, the American Civil War, up until essentially the dawn of the, of the recording industry, that was a false dichotomy. Uh, there was a, a pre-blues tradition that was mixed, it was shared, it was neither, neither white nor black, it was mongrel, it was everything. Maybe you should, you should play something and we, I mean, we could play the, the guessing game and see and, and 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 imagine who might be playing. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I'll, I'll play two records. One is by black musicians. One is by white musicians. But uh, uh, largely, the instrumentation and the repertoire and the style is the same. And this sort of shows that, um, if anything, it was the recording industry that started to parse out and say this is black and this is white. Surprise ending there. Yeah. I think that they were very high during that session. You can hear the guy kind of like mumbling, like, and the way he's just experimenting with like just how long he draws out New Orleans. Yeah. So he's gonna... yeah, it was a completely improvised session. It sounded like black musicians to me. Not so much because of how they were playing, but because of their accents. Chris pulls out the other record. This record 
1929. And also, I didn't realize it until I pulled it. This is uh, in, also Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so both, uh, both recorded in the same place. Same place. They probably knew each other. They probably knew Quit each your foolishness around you. He knows he's got everything in the One of the speakers says, quit your foolishness around here. He says it, yeah. I hear white people in that straight away. Maybe you should say, who, who were we listening to? Oh, so we were listening. The first track was uh, Chitlin Supper by Peg Leg Howell and Jim Hill. Peg Leg Howell, he had a peg leg. Peg Leg and his band in Atlanta were black, as I guessed correctly. Uh, and then the second record is the South Georgia Highballers doing Bluegrass Twist. And they were a white group. The point of Chris's demonstration wasn't that back in the day, black and white musicians sounded interchangeable, though it's true that they did seem to play their instruments in almost the same way. No, Chris's point was that someone has been training us all these decades to hear and recognize slight differences and immediately attribute them to race. We've been taught categories, and every day we're taught them anew by those who patrol the boundaries. Let's play a little game called That Ain't Country. This game is just played by me talking about stuff that ain't country. That's a country music YouTuber called Grady Tate, who wants us to know what ain't country. And the first one and main one that really inspired this video is, as I'm sure you've heard, this song Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. You might remember the internet drama around Old Town Road, For a while, TikTok was dominated by teenagers magically transforming themselves into cowboys and cowgirls to the sound of this song. 67 million views later, Old Town Road topped the Billboard Hot 100 for 19 weeks, a record. And it made both the country and the R&B charts. I'm not actually even mad at Lil Nas X at all for making this song. Who I'm mad at is like the gatekeepers over at iTunes and over on Billboard that are letting this song chart as a country song. And it's not a country song at all. This is a hip hop song uh, that, that I guess is about horses. That Ain't Country was just a tiny part of the backlash against Lil Nas. And eventually Billboard pulled Old Town Road from the country category. It did not contain, quote, enough elements of today's country music. Lil Nas X was officially not country. Like many people, I thought I detected a racial subtext in this argument. Old Town Road has a heavy trap beat and big bass, but lots of contemporary country music uses elements of other popular styles, including hip-hop. Why pick on Lil Nas X? People said his song didn't sound authentic. I'm always on the alert when I hear the word authentic. It's a gatekeeping word, a word used to exclude. It's also racially loaded. My mum's English and my dad's Indian. When I was growing up, I was made to feel that I wasn't white enough, but also that I wasn't brown enough. As a writer, I've always told stories that challenge simple ideas about authenticity, that try to show how the world is complex and more mixed up than we give it credit for. The kind of stories I'm telling in this podcast. 
to get a better handle on authenticity in American popular music, I took the A train. It goes all the way uptown from where I live in Brooklyn to Harlem. I was going to see a writer friend called Kevin Young. Kevin is a poet and the director of one of the most important libraries in the US, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. I wanted to ask Kevin, by dressing up as a cowboy, was Lil Nas X somehow appropriating white culture? Well, I mean, uh, cowboy face, is that what you're suggesting? Is that there's such a thing? Now we have to go back and talk about cowboys who weren't all white. In fact, there were many, many black and brown and, uh, you know, Asian cowboys. Um, The way we think of cowboys is shaped, I think, entirely by cinema. Uh, And John Wayne couldn't ride a horse. I should leap in here and say that, of course, John Wayne could ride. He just wasn't that fond of horses and he only rode on set, never for fun. But Lil Nas X isn't playing a cowboy in the same way as John Wayne is playing a cowboy. John Wayne fans revere him because they feel he's channeling something authentic. He convinces them that he's a cowboy. In his dazzling stage suits, Lil Nas X isn't trying to convince you of anything but his fabulousness. He's giving a knowing performance. It's cowboy style. It's camp. A kind of camp with deep roots in African-American culture. And here's where things get really interesting. Kevin connects that form of camp to the cakewalk, a parade-like competitive dance that started in the days of slavery. It was performed for a prize, sometimes a cake. It was a dance from the plantation of blacks, uh, the enslaved, uh, mocking their would-be masters, their putative slave owners, uh, the holders of them, supposedly. They are imitating them, um, you know, being, quote, fancy. And of course, it depends on where you stand, how you took that. If you were the white uh, slaveholder, you thought, wow, look at them not quite able to do what I do in my elegant dance. Uh, And if you were the black uh, performer, you were like, boy, they don't understand how much fun we're making of them, you know, and how much fun we're having in this limited system which, in, within which we can only operate this way. The cakewalk was the ancestor of everything from the line dance on Soul Train to ballroom voguing. It's the ancestor of Lil Nas X sashaying along in his hot pink mesh cowboy shirt. At the same time, you know, there's this parodic, satiric quality of the music that, you know, I'm tracing back to the cakewalk, but we can trace back any number of ways, which is give me a form and I'm going to make fun of it. And I'm going to make it better than you made it. Of course, when Lil Nas X was having a showdown with the country music authenticity sheriffs, an outlaw rode to his rescue. Billy Ray Cyrus, famous mullet haver and father of Miley, teamed up with Nas. Ah. It should be fine. We'll settle in here for the night. I don't know, man. Last time I was here, they weren't too welcoming outsiders. In the video they made together, Nas rides a horse down a street in East L.A. He and Billy also face down an all-white crowd of seniors in a community hall. The segregated bingo game turns into a line dance. And it all ends in a sweet, interracial prom photo. Nas fixes a smile, 
and his old white lady dance partner gazes admiringly up at him. But let's be honest, this kind of thing is exactly what makes a lot of country music fans uneasy. In a world of style and flim-flam, country sells itself on authenticity, on realness. Though it sometimes wears rhinestones and hairspray, country means songs about growing up poor, about enduring hard times. And it has musical traditions. Country fans feel there's a way it ought to sound. Everyone knows that country has that thing, that twang. No, you can't take my door. I don't want to love you anymore. Let my heart be my face. Barbed whiskey good and a whiskey straight. No, you can't take my door. If that sounded off to you, congratulations, your bullshit detectors are still functioning. That was country music generated by artificial intelligence. Researchers trained a neural network on country music's greatest hits. This was what it came up with. Look at yourself and a hand and a shelf in the wind. The melody and the lyrics were the work of the AI. The arrangement and singing, humans. Elsewhere on the internet, there's a 24-7 live stream of AI-generated death metal created on the fly with no human intervention at all. I don't want to make you listen to that. I really don't. All right, I do. Sorry. At some point, possibly very late at night, I realised that in 2020, any conversation about country music and authenticity is best conducted by two men of South Asian descent in a living room in Brooklyn, drinking old fashions. I am from Pennsylvania, and I grew up in a college town. I've always loved music, but I think that I came across country music just artificially, just, you know, collecting records as a teenager, uh, discovering that unexpectedly, I really liked this stuff. This is Shuja Haider. Shuja is a smart cultural critic who's always happy to share his opinions on political philosophy or the best Michael Mann movie. Collateral. Shuja also loves country music. And I think it may actually have something to do with, with my South Asian background that, you know, I grew up on hearing the sort of uh, uh, Bollywood music of the 40s and 50s and 60s that my dad used to play. And those songs are all full of stories. You know, they were associated with the movies of the time. Uh, they describe rural life uh, or urban life uh, in, in India. Uh, and they're written by, you know, some great poets, the lyrics. Uh, what would some uh, favourites of yours be? Well, my dad loved Muhammad Rafi and uh, Talat Mahmood. Yeah, these are songs that are very intricately written. They draw on the folk traditions of the uh, landscape. And uh, I think country music kind of does the same thing. Shuja has written about his own attempt to pin down the essence of country music, that certain something, that feel, that twang. Twang is a word that initially is used to describe language. People who speak with various kinds of accents, the way you articulate a vowel or so on, 
were often described as twang all the way back to Europe in, in the 17th century. And it often is used to denote a, a Southern accent, dropping the G's and, you know, kind of twirling your vowels and so on. I was riding number nine, heading south from Caroline. And that's a sound that I think at the time that people in the South started to migrate to California, towards the North, towards city centers, they brought their accents with them and they brought their musical traditions with them. And once they came into contact with the new technologies that were being used to produce music and to record music, they started to emerge in new ways. So you have the sound of an electrified string, you know, being uh, picked up by a magnet that's being fed into an amplifier. And people are giving it the same kind of articulation that they would give their speech. And I think that's what we call twang. Shuja points out that the twang, the sound I think of when I think of country music, is an electrified sound. The sound of an instrument called the pedal steel. Pedal steel is a wooden board that has strings across it, and rather than actually being touched with fingers, it's uh, played with a steel bar and uh, usually uh, sort of false like metal claws. Uh, and it's got not just not just the, the steel bar to change the notes, but also a system of pedals that change the notes after they've already been articulated. The quintessential sound of a genre that prides itself on tradition is the sound of a modern instrument. Pedal steel sums it up. It was invented in the 20th century. It was constantly revised and tinkered with. You know, uh, it originally has its roots in Hawaiian music with the lap steel. You can't play the pedal steel on a farm. The pedal steel is an electric instrument. It needs to be amplified, otherwise you can't really hear it. And it's really kind of a space-age sound. You know, it sounds something like the theremin, or it even sounds like a synthesizer. This is what commercial country and western music sounded like in 1937. Blue Yodel Number no. 2, recorded in Los Angeles by a band called The Rhythm Wreckers. This song is a cosmic collision of styles and influences. It's a blues about a loving gal called Lucille. The growling vocal is copied from black singers like Bessie Smith. But the singer is a 14-year-old white boy from Oklahoma who goes by Whitey McPherson. about that yodel. It sounds so good, yet it's so weird. Yodeling was actually a solid part of American life for at least a hundred years. Yodeling started in the Swiss Alps, of course, but American yodeling had a long history in blackface minstrel shows. The writer of this song was the huge star Jimmy Rogers. He started out performing as a blackface minstrel. 
What you're hearing is in fact a space age Hawaiian alpine blackface minstrel song. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Carry me back to old Virginia. That's where the cotton and the corn and the taters grow. That's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime. There's where the darkies' heart am long to go. That's an old minstrel song. Until 1997, it was also the state song of Virginia. 
This version was sung by Marian Anderson, the first black singer to appear at the Metropolitan Opera House. Carry Me Back was written in 1878 by a black singer and composer called James A. Bland. But would you say the song was black music? Marian Anderson sings in a European style, with European orchestration, and Bland's lyrics repeat one of the primary racist fantasies of the South, that free black people long for the certainties of the plantation, that they actually want to be enslaved again. The black man who wrote the words had never been a slave on a Virginia plantation. He was a Howard University graduate from Flushing, Queens, who made his living writing minstrel songs. Carry Me Back to Old Virginia has a quality I find in Old Town Road, in Blue Yodel Number 2, and so many other American popular songs. It's like a Merbius strip with a white side and a black side that run together, impossible to separate. My Virginia friend Chris, the collector, lives inside that strip. He loves it. It's a wonder that that you can find anything because these are all identically sleeved records. They're all in these uniform brown paper sleeves. And I mean, I don't know how many you have here. I don't know if you know how many you have here. He has 5,500 records. Could you, I mean, talk about your cataloging. How do you? Oddly enough, (laughs) oddly enough, talking about segregation. So this is all black. Top to, shelf. To about here. Uh-huh. And then going from there yonder is all Cajun. Uh-huh. And then from here over to there is all white hillbilly. And then Ukrainian, Polish, Indian, Albanian, Greek, Turkish, African, uh, Mongolian. Oh, I didn't know you didn't know you did Mongolian. Do I have one Mongolian record? Just <laughs> As our evening together gets later and later, Chris ranges across topics, occasionally pausing to roll a cigarette or refill our glasses. Uh, all right, I'm going to get another glass of wine, and then I'll, I'll play you something that will go good with that. Okay. But, but black, but you won't be able to tell it's black. Okay. I swear to God. At that time, in 1929, you would have been able to encounter William Moore playing that piece and then somebody like my grandfather playing the exact same piece with probably the same vocal inflection, the same style. In Britain, folk singers revived ballads and traditional regional songs, always striving to sound as authentic as possible, searching back in time for some pure, original version. American music was, from the earliest days, a hybrid. I asked Chris to play me English ballads, Irish jigs and African banjo playing to show how elements from many different places went into the sounds of American music and how they began to blend together into something that couldn't have been from anywhere else. This is Old Country Stomp by a Texan musician called Henry Thomas. Very little is known about him. 
He was a wandering songster and sometimes a hobo who rode the rails across America in the early years of the 20th century. We never would have heard him at all had he not been brought into a studio in Chicago where he recorded this in 1928. So Henry Thomas is, 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 is somebody who was born early, wasn't he? He was quite he was old by old the time he was recorded in the 20s. And he's, like one of the, he's like one of the poster boy examples of, of like where black and white get very uh, muddy. But he's one of those musicians that I would find his records mixed in with white country records because people just liked the way he sounded. They said he sounded country. typical country breakdown. I mean, that, yeah. that's what you would have heard in a barn being played on fiddle and banjo with somebody just making calls, you know, swing your partner. But it's a black guy. Henry Thomas cut 12 records in Chicago, 24 sides, and one in particular found its way into the ears of white folk musicians in the 1960s. If you're of the love and peace generation, and even if you're not, you might find this familiar. It was performed at Woodstock in 1969. Canned Heat, who had a huge career in the late 60s, performing a lot of, let's call them homage, to the pioneers of country blues. Pioneers like Henry Thomas. I fucking love that record. You should have seen the look on my eyes when I saw that. When did you find that? Shit, man. I found this uh, 14 years... I didn't find it. I bought it from a, a junker 14 years ago, a guy who was just going around picking up stuff. And he met me in the back of a Walmart in town. Eventually, we got onto the topic of what they used to call hot jazz, the fast-paced, syncopated sounds that made flappers crazy in the 20s. Chris isn't a big jazz collector, but jokes that he keeps one record around for conversations just like this one. cocaine what is going on there <laughs> i know it's a hardcore traditional new orleans group it just happened to be white, white people. yeah but that kind of music really worried a lot of people uh or a lot of a lot of white moral gatekeepers didn't it yeah i mean you've heard of the shimmy she wobble right i actually have not heard of the shimmy she wobble the shimmy i have not wobble. okay it's a nasty dance it's a fuck dance it's it's simulated copulation while standing up with another woman and dancing. And it was outlawed in 23 states, the shimmy-she-wobble at one point. How could you not be fascinated by the shimmy-she-wobble? These fast, sexy jazz dancers were once the subject of a full-scale moral panic. I found a screed against jazz dancing in a 1921 edition of Ladies' Home Journal. It's by Anne Shaw Faulkner, National Music Chairman of the General Federation of Women's Clubs. The title? 
does jazz put the sin in syncopation? That it has a demoralizing effect upon the human brain has been demonstrated by many scientists. Jazz produces an atrophied condition on brain cells of conception until, very frequently, those under the demoralizing influence of the persistent use of syncopation, combined with inharmonic partial tones, are actually incapable of distinguishing between good and evil, right and wrong. Personally, I think that sounds awesome. But here's where we get to the nitty-gritty. There's an effort to get rid of the shimmy-she-wobble or the more the safe name foxtrot. There was this, this notion to like push traditional values of hillbilly music, of going back to square dancing. I wanted to know if this was because there was less physical contact between the dancers. Yeah, exactly. There was no touching at all unless you held the hand of the person while they cut corners with you. One thing I've, I'm very interested in is that there was an attempt to make the square dance the official dance of, 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 of America. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that was one of Henry Ford's less great ideas. Henry Ford. Yes, that Henry Ford, the one best known for the Model T. But like the billionaires weighing in on today's politics, Henry Ford had many opinions, and they got taken seriously because he was Henry Ford. Mr. Ford didn't just think jazz was bad, he thought it was a conspiracy. In his self-published pamphlet, The International Jew, he writes, Popular music is a Jewish monopoly. Jazz is a Jewish creation. The mush, slush, the sly suggestion, the abandoned sensuousness of sliding notes are of Jewish origin. Ford's solution Wholesome white traditions of music and dance. Take it away, the Henry Ford All-Time Dance Orchestra. Denunciation of the dance by the protectors of public morals has usually been occasioned by the importations of dances which are foreign to the expressional needs of our people. With characteristic American judgment, however, the balance is now shifting toward that style of dancing which best fits with the American temperament. Don't you feel cleaner for hearing that? Like a spiritual high colonic. Now you're free of all that dangerous foreign syncopation rotting your brain and destroying your morals. By the end of the 1920s, after Henry Ford's campaign, Almost half the schoolchildren in America were learning square dancing and other forms of folk dance. Later on, there was a concerted push to make square dancing the official folk dance of the US. Not tap dancing or the jitterbug or any number of Native American dances. Dozens of bills and resolutions endorsing square dancing went before Congress and state legislatures right into the early 2000s. Racists like Henry Ford were trying to create an authentic, segregated folk culture. The recording industry took care of the rest. In 1922, the OK label began to market what it called race records, specifically to the African-American market. Between the 1920s and 1940s, many major labels issued their own series of race records, bringing jazz, blues, sermons, gospel and other genres of music to a black audience that was excited to hear their culture on the phonograph. Eventually, the race terminology fell away. 
to be replaced by rhythm and blues, R&B, and of course the insidious term, urban. But from the earliest times, Americans have made music together, with no regard for categories or labels. Some years ago, Chris King stumbled on a rare Cajun record. Uh, this is uh, uh, La Valse à Abe, Abe's Waltz from uh, 1929 with uh, Dennis McGee and Amadeira Amadeo Duen was a, a black accordion player uh, in southwest Louisiana who uh, recorded almost everything that he made was with a white fiddler, Dennis McGee. So it's an instance of neither black nor white, but together. And when you listen to the recordings, you can t- they're so hand in glove. It's not like it's two friends playing together. It's like two brothers playing together. The American birthright is fusion, the talent for blending things together and making something new. For every Henry Ford trying to separate us, there are a hundred Amade Ardoins and Dennis McGee's making music together like brothers. the most beautiful fucking thing you've ever heard. I say goodbye to Chris King and the beautiful sounds on Shellac discs. I have an appointment with the memory of Alcyone. I maintain... The truth is a pathless land and cannot be approached by any path whatsoever, by any religion, by any sect. Truth being limitless, unconditioned, unapproachable by any path whatsoever, cannot be organized. Gurus on the beach, colonizers on the astral plane, and a very special guest in the Kunzru family home. That's next week on Into the Zone. Into the Zone is produced by Ryder Alsop and Hunter Braithwaite. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia LaBelle is our executive producer. Martin Gonzalez is our engineer. Music for this episode composed by Griffin Jennings. Our theme song is composed by Sarah K. Pedinotti, also known as Lip Talk. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostick, and Maggie Taylor. Into the Zone is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting others know. 
The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcasts. You could even write a review. See you next week. I'm Harry Kunzru. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. 